Hi everyone, this is Safeguarding Matters, a podcast by the Safeguarding Resource and Support Hub. I'm Nastasia Getchim and I'm joined by my co-host Paul Nolan. Hi everyone, I'm Paul. Uh, really nice to be here with you all and uh, with you Nastasia. Uh, we've been working on the Hub together since it started in December 2019 I think. Nastasia, maybe before we start you could give people a quick uh, summary of the Hub and what it involves. Yeah, sure. So the Hub, or RSH, we tend to use both terms uh, interchangeably, is a programme that aims to support organisations in the aid sector to strengthen their safeguarding policy and practice, particularly against sexual exploitation, abuse and sexual harassment, or SEAH. And Safeguarding Matters is a podcast by The Hub, where we discuss matters relating to safeguarding in the aid sector. We'll have conversations with thought leaders and practitioners who can offer insights that can help us all to better understand safeguarding and to improve our practices. So in today's episode, uh, we'll offer some more introduction to the Safeguarding Resource and Support Hub, RSH, Um, as not many of you will have heard of us yet. Uh, and we'll be joined by the programme funders from DFID and we'll talk to them uh, to find out a bit more about why they've been focusing on safeguarding and SEAH uh, and what led them to establish the hub. And then we'll hear from our own Ethiopian national associates at the hub who will talk about the context in Ethiopia and why our first national hub is based there. And uh, by the way, we're recording this in the midst of lockdown, so let's hope the internet holds up and apologies if the sound quality dips at all. Okay, well, I'm very pleased to introduce our first guests, Natalie Vastig and Gwilym Jones from the Safeguarding Unit at DFID. Uh, The Safeguarding Unit is a team within DFID that was set up in February 2018. Uh, It's focused solely on safeguarding against sexual exploitation and abuse and sexual harassment in DFID programming. Uh, Natalie is part of the senior management team in the safeguarding unit and Gwilym is the senior responsible officer, uh, the SRO for the programme and is accountable for it. So, hi, uh, welcome to Safeguarding Matters. It's great to have you both on the first podcast. Really pleased to, to be here and have the opportunity to speak to you and to your listeners. Yeah, thank you, Paul, and it's great to have the opportunity. Good. Okay, well, uh, let me begin then uh, with you, Natalie. Maybe I could ask you just to share some reflections on why safeguarding and SEAH is such a key issue in the aid sector and uh, what does it mean for DFID? Yeah, thanks, Paul. So I think in early 2018, the aid sector's failure over many years to do enough to prevent and respond to sexual exploitation, abuse and sexual harassment really came into focus. And and I think it was a wake-up call for us all that we were we were not doing enough and that we really need to do more because I think ultimately if we do not get things right on safeguarding and ensure protection of the most vulnerable then we undermine trust in the whole sector and jeopardize all the really positive work that aid does. So for DFID since early 2018 we've been leading a number of initiatives to root out perpetrators, to support survivors and to build capacity across the sector and I think The October 2018 London Safeguarding Summit was a really important milestone and it saw representatives from more than 500 organisations come together along with survivors, victims and whistleblowers. And and at the summit, groups of organisations, so United Nations, private sector contractors, NGOs, donors and others, made commitments for change and and as you can see in the one year on reports from October 2019, so obviously one year on from the summit, 
progress against these commitments is being made by all organisations and we are seeing change. But we have to be honest and recognise that many challenges still do remain and, and this is a long-term agenda requiring leadership and culture change and culture change both within organisations but also within the societies in which we all live and work. So we're really determined to maintain momentum across the whole aid sector to ensure that the failings of the past do not happen again. Yes, well, safeguarding uh, certainly has been on the agenda in a major way for the sector over the past two years in particular. Um, Gwilym, you're responsible for the, the programme within DFID, and I believe you designed the original concept for the hub. Um, where, where did the idea for the hub come from and how did you go about designing the initiative? So the, the idea of the Centre of Excellence, which evolved into the Resource and Support Hub, was first discussed at a summit in March 2018. And uh, priority in the early design phase of the programme after that, as it has been throughout really, was to make sure that it was led and informed by evidence and engagement with end users. And by that we mean under-resourced smaller aid organisations working in developing countries. So to understand more about the problem, we commissioned a scoping report which really drew on a wide range of primary data, including interviews and surveys with key actors from across the sector. Um, and DFID also separately commissioned a survey of around 200 practitioners and downstream partners to, to really understand where the gaps were that needed to be addressed. We also made sure that we took what we call a survivor-centred approach, so prioritising and engaging survivors and victims and their representatives. So in 2018, we held a survivor listening exercise, which involved interviewing around 30 representatives of survivors and victims to, to really make sure that their needs and considerations were shaping our programme and our policy response. So ultimately, this end-user engagement helped us to define much more clearly where the gaps were across both the development and the humanitarian fields that this programme ultimately looks to address and, and makes it a uniquely important offer to the sector. And these gaps um, broadly fell into three areas of what we call pillars. So the first was um, that the safeguarding SEAH landscape is fragmented with no one centralised body for bringing together the tools and resources and guidance that's, that's out there. Secondly, that the existing SEAH service providers are, just aren't always easy to, you know, easy to identify. And we found that some of the services that are out there are quite variable in quality. And thirdly, we found that the existing evidence base for what works in terms of safeguarding against SEAH is quite scattered and varying quality. And that actually it prohibits a thorough analysis of the evidence gaps that need to be addressed. OK, great. Well, can you just tell us a bit more about what DFID hopes to achieve through the RSH? Yeah, of course. So the first thing to say is that the online platform that we're launching is a global good and that we want the whole international community to benefit from it. But that said, the primary target audience, as I mentioned, is those under-resourced, smaller organisations operating in developing countries who might otherwise lack the capacity or the resource to effectively safeguard their beneficiaries and their staff. In terms of what we're specifically hoping to achieve, at a really high level, we want to accelerate progress towards reducing and ultimately eliminating sexual exploitation, abuse and sexual harassment in the aid sector, and really restoring that public trust that's been eroded. And we, we really hope that the Resource and Support Hub will make a valuable contribution towards that in supporting smaller organisations to develop and ultimately implement evidence-based policies and processes that will drive up standards internationally. Great. And yeah, really good to have that focus on CSOs and increasing their access to support and resources. Um, Gwilym, the RSH has a particular focus on sexual forms of exploitation, abuse and harassment within the sector. Could you just say a bit about why that is? 
So, I mean, as you allude to, safeguarding has a broader meaning that encompasses preventing harm to people and the environment. And of course, we believe that aid must be delivered in a way that does no harm. But yeah, as you say, the Resource Support Hub and and Difford Safeguarding Unit more widely has been deliberately designed to focus on preventing and responding to SEAH because these are some of the, the gravest violations of people who might be vulnerable and at risk. And in terms of the evidence, we know that SEAH has been widespread within the sector for a long time and long predating 2018. And, and while due to underreporting, the exact scale of the problem just isn't known. Practitioners believe that the reported numbers are really only the tip of the iceberg and the SEAH perpetrators in the aid sector are really quite diverse. Great. Thanks, Gwilym. Um, Natalie, you mentioned other initiatives that came out of the Safeguarding Summit in 2018. Um, are there other in- initiatives that DFID is involved in that uh, listeners might be interested to know about? Yeah, thanks, Paul. So there are a couple of initiatives DFID are involved in and working on that your listeners might be particularly interested in. So I think on support to survivors, it's important to say that this is and will continue to be a top priority. And, and the theme of the Safeguarding Summit was putting people first. And we must ensure a survivor-centred approach is taken. So DFID is starting to think about what more we could do to support survivors. And I, and I recognise that there is a lot of expertise and experience out there across the sector. So really do encourage anyone listening who has any ideas or thoughts on this to get in touch. But also to say that we do plan to consult on this further over the next month or two. Um, it's also worth mentioning the employment cycle initiatives DFID is supporting. And these aim to prevent perpetrators moving around the aid sector undetected and to improve information sharing between organisations and with law enforcement. So we have the Misconduct and Disclosure Scheme, which was launched in January 2019. And this is designed to stop workers guilty of sexual misconduct, moving from job to job without prospective employees being aware of that. And it's, it's showing early promise and, and really do encourage those who have yet to sign up to do so. And, and more information can be found on the Steering Committee for Humanitarian Response website. And we're also working with Interpol to improve vetting and information sharing across the sector and on an aid worker registration scheme, which we are hoping to pilot later this year. And then also just to mention some guidance and tools, which might be of interest to listeners as well. So... DFID supported UK NGO platform BOMD and a group of NGOs to develop a reports handling toolkit. And this is available on the BOMD website and a digital leadership and culture tool, which is expected to be finalised and also made available on BOMD's website later this year. And we're also supporting the development of disability inclusive safeguarding guidelines. So these will complement the existing global standards on safeguarding by delivering real practical guidance on how to put them into practice when working with people with disabilities. And then just to say, given the the critical role of international standards, DFID continues to support the Humanitarian Quality Assurance Initiative, so HCI. And HCI have established two mechanisms to facilitate access to its audit services. So they have a subsidy fund that can cover up to 90% of the cost of an audit and a group scheme, which enables several small organisations to join in an audit and and divide the costs between them. So as as I'm I'm sure you're aware, there is a lot going on and the initiatives that I've mentioned uh, in no way exhaustive, uh, but demonstrates that action being taken. And and as I mentioned earlier, this is a long term agenda, agenda, so it does require our continued focus and effort. Absolutely. And uh, as you say, a lot going on, uh, some great initiatives there, and uh, we look forward to uh, tracking those in the future. Um, 
Gwilym, I believe Diffid has also created a, a network of safeguarding champions across Diffid and the country offices. Uh, could you share a little bit more about that network and how that fits into all of this? So as well as the work that we at Diffid are doing to build safeguarding capability and capacity externally and across the sector, we're similarly focused on looking internally to make sure that we're holding ourselves to the same high standards that we're expecting of others. So that means that really to affect um, long-term behavioural change on safeguarding within Diffid, we need to do more than just issue guidance and tools. And actually we need people, in other words, our staff, to be leading and taking the initiative on, on safeguarding norms and practices. So for that reason, this year we've set up a, a Diffid-wide safeguarding volunteer network, which already has over 60 members across the world in Diffid's offices. And these volunteers are responsible for, for building awareness and understanding and also building capability on safeguarding in a way that we recognise that, that we can't do from our offices in Whitehall. Great. OK, good to hear. Um, if I could maybe ask you both now, it, it's um, May 2020 and we're in the midst of the COVID-19 global pandemic. That's uh, obviously having an impact across the world. Uh, could I ask you just to share a bit about how the work of DFID and the safeguarding unit in particular uh, has been affected by this and how are you responding to the crisis? Yeah, thanks. So, yeah, safeguarding remains a priority in our response to COVID-19 and um, evidence suggests that, that exploitation and abuse increased during crises. So it's really important that we do not become complacent and, and it will become harder to report cases properly, to provide support services, to investigate cases and to really maintain a focus on sexual exploitation, abuse and sexual harassment, given there are a lot of other demands. But it's vital that efforts to safeguard against sexual exploitation, abuse and sexual harassment should be seen as life-saving and not as optional. Yeah, and just to add, as part of our response to COVID-19, through the Resource and Support Hub, DFID has developed two short guidance notes, one for DFID staff and one for aid organisations working in countries affected by COVID-19 on how to prevent and address SEAH in programmes during the pandemic. And these notes set out really clearly who is at increased risk of SEAH and provides practical suggestions on what concrete actions we should be taking to address SEAH in situations such as lockdown, or rapid response of humanitarian action. And there's further guidance signposted on the Resource and Support Hub um, online portal. And more broadly, DFID also continues to coordinate our response, working closely with other donors. Thanks. So um, some real challenges that I'm sure will resonate with uh, many of our listeners, but good to hear about the initiatives and supports available. And uh, as you say, RSH will, uh, of course, be part of that response. Uh, well, Gwilym and Natalie, it's been really great and interesting to hear from you both. Um, thanks for giving us some of your time. You're obviously incredibly busy with everything you've described and um, really encouraging to hear how Diffie's commitment to this agenda remains uh, very clearly at the forefront of all its work. Uh, so thank you both uh, and thanks again for your time. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks, Paul. Um, and great this programme's come so far and so quickly and it's exciting to see that the programme's being launched. Great. Thanks both. Our next guest is Semhal Getachao. Semhal joins us from Addis Ababa as the RSH National Associate in Ethiopia. She's been working in international development for over 15 years in the field of women's empowerment. She is a trained safeguarding investigator and has a background in law. Hi Semhal, thanks for joining us and welcome to Safeguarding Matters. Oh, thanks, I'm very pleased to be here. Great. So, um, as I mentioned, you're based in Ethiopia and you're heading up the first national hub for the RSH programme. 
Um, I thought I might start with a bit more of a personal question. I hope you don't mind. But um, as I mentioned in your intro, um, you've been working on safeguarding and women's empowerment for a number of years. And um, I guess I'd quite like to know why you got into working on safeguarding and SEAH and why it's such an important issue to you. Looking back, I think I've been involved within pieces and different work with SEAH throughout my career. And coming to the hub now, it felt like it is the right place to be because when we are talking about um, these issues, it's about let's talk honestly. And even if it makes us vulnerable, especially for organizations who have power dynamics, culture, country context, institutions, legal uh, vacuums, it is very complex. So I like working on this because it's about putting the pieces of the puzzle together openly and jointly with other organizations. Great. And so in your response, you mentioned a little bit about power dynamics and vacuums and institutions. So perhaps you could tell us a little bit about the context in Ethiopia. Um, I realize, obviously, that data on SEH and the prevalence of SEH is, is very limited. But perhaps you could share a little bit more about the context that you're operating in um, as it relates to safeguarding and SEAH. So um, Ethiopia has one of the largest aid and development interventions by different actors. However, we do not have documented study or report on the extent of SEH in the aid sector. In terms of also the legal context, Ethiopia has ratified different laws, uh, international on women's and uh, children's safeguarding. However, when you come to uh, sexual harassment, for example, the country just started unrolling the different um, uh, legislations or revisions. For example, the labor law did not have any mention of sexual harassment in the earlier versions. Even the civil servants proclamation, the, the, the law that governs the uh, employment relationship of government staffs didn't have also sexual harassment, but recent revisions have incorporated these. Organizations have reporting systems in place, however big or small. Some have hotlines, some have uh, hotlines with face-to-face -face mechanisms for community-based complaints and response. The Civil Society Support Program too has conducted very interesting capacity assessment with almost 100 CSOs and the finding shows that significant majority of the CSOs have the policy. Only 3% didn't have any policy in place. They have code of conduct and some staff induction in place. And there's also some level of, uh, like I said before, reporting mechanism in place. But monitoring how effective these are against you know, the incidents and reporting and learning from this is very limited. And organizations admitted that they have a huge need for support on this area. And in terms of drivers of um, SEH in Ethiopia, poverty, gender inequality, weak institutions are some of the challenges. But what seems to be coming up from synthesis of years of studies in the country is that discrimination and stigma on victims seems to be standing out as the most common factor. So reading this also, if you want, with the Ethiopian Demographic and Health Survey recent 2016 finding that shows 
the abuse that is reported to the legal sector is the severe one, often multiple nature, physical and sexual violence, if it happens together. Then often the reporting is on the magnitude or the severity of the abuse. Other than that, in most areas, reporting is the challenge because of, like I said, many studies are pinpointing specifically to stigma and discrimination on victims. And services are not directed uh, with the aim of responding to victims. It's often about putting perpetrator into the justice system or penalizing and things like that. And they're neglected. The victims are neglected in the process. Thanks, Samha. So you've raised, yeah, you've raised a number of, of issues here, I think, particularly around sort of monitoring and learning and really encouraging um, people to, to report instances where cases do arise, whether they're extreme or not, and to kind of build a culture of reporting and for those to be taken seriously. So, I mean, from, from these issues that you've raised, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what is already being done in Ethiopia to respond to this. And and if, if so, what are the sort of major stakeholders and the really sort of key initiatives that we should know about? What is interesting about safeguarding initiatives in Ethiopia is there hasn't been any collectively across organization initiatives until the recent uh, 2018 uh, Protection Against Sexual Exploitation and Abuse Network, which is primarily humanitarian. Uh, chaired by UN Women and co-chaired by WFP, um, is the first that's trying to to try an across-the-board kind of initiative. For now, the members are international NGOs. Um, they have a huge desire to have uh, local CSOs, but the, the engaging them seems to have been um, not practical at this time. And they're trying also to have standardized materials, training material that's being produced. And they're planning to have it available in Amharic, Afan Oromo, Tigrinya, and Somali. They're in the process of also having a common reporting and help desk. The other organizations such as Save the Children, Catholic Relief Services, Plan International, and Oak Foundation have had initiatives that are you know, organizational specific, but with detailed training and also setting up a community complaints and redress mechanism and support to local CSOs. Same is also happening by CS, uh, CSSP2 program, the Civil Society Support Program 2, which is working with 132 CSOs across the country and building their capacity. So these mostly are very um, organizational specific and some are lost because institutional memory they are not reported documented properly we have so for that reason the country hasn't really built up a community of practice or a cohort of trained uh, safeguarding experts as yet and so perhaps that leads on nicely to to rsh um I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how the national hub in Ethiopia fits into all of this, so fits into this context and fits into what's already been done and what needs to be done. So the focus of the, this program is supporting the smaller local CSOs in the country. Um, this country-based initiatives uh, provides 
you know, more intensive and relevant support to those CSOs, not all of whom can access the internet, of course. So some of the support will be through face-to-face training, monitoring or learning events, or even an offline app in the future. There is a discussion about that. By working at the national levels, we could really develop a set of activities and materials that respond to the specific needs of the that the, the clients in safeguarding and help create space for local communities uh, of practice to emerge. Organizations can learn a lot from one another through this through this um, communities of practice. The hub will also signpost service providers who are quality assured to some degree for NGOs to access expertise easily. The platform will also harness uh, support for NGOs to initiate national level reporting mechanisms such as through the civil societies, organization agency or delegates. So this is kind of like uh, supporting civil society organizations to demand the formation of a system that enhances accountability between organizations and uh, common understanding on safeguarding. And in case uh, any of our listeners are wondering, would you mind just sharing a bit about why Ethiopia was selected as a national hub and whether you've got any intel on plans for more national hubs? We all recognise that there is no global data. Um, Ethiopia was selected for a very practical reasons. DFID has a large program in Ethiopia. It features both development and humanitarian programs. And there seems to be also very a huge appetite at different levels to address SCH uh, um, in the aid programming. Um, we're supposed to launch in Nigeria and South Sudan, but are on hold due to uh, COVID-19. Um, and then there could also be potentially other national hubs in other um uh, parts of the world as well. Great. So I guess it's a it's a matter of watch this space. Um, so just to get back to to the national hub in Ethiopia, you mentioned a little bit about sort of the focus, but I wonder what kind of activities you've been um, you've been doing since it launched. Well, since February, we've been very busy trying to un- you know scope what is happening, who's doing what, and trying to understand the country context. We've spoken to civil societies and others in the sector to learn more about their self-gapping concerns and needs. We have been searching for tools, resources, and research um, that are contextually adopted uh, to Ethiopia. All of that is coming into pieces that provides relevant, locally relevant services, information, and capacity development activities. Um, We'll be sharing materials that we find on the Ethiopian Hub page uh, where we have permission to do so. We very much would like to have uh, the materials that we put on the Ethiopia page to be locally um, relevant in terms of language and context. We're delighted to have identified several interested and experienced experts and we have established our national experts uh, uh, board to help advise on our activities in Ethiopia. Now, you mentioned the uh, Ethiopia hub page. Now, obviously, the online hub element is such a key feature of the RSH programme. And what we're hoping is that this website will be 
a one-stop shop for anyone who's working in the aid sector to find support on any issue that they're facing. So whether it is developing a policy or whether it is carrying out an investigation, uh, we want it to really be um, those resources, specific resources to be available on the website. Um, so there's obviously the overall website, but you've mentioned the Ethiopia Hub page. Could you tell us a little bit more about um, what uh, resources can be found specifically on that hub page? You mentioned sort of contextually relevant and in local languages. Could you give us a little bit more of a flavour of what we can find on there? That's actually the most exciting part about the hub is to be able to go to a country-specific information. I think a lot of providers, they wanted to see that and they'll definitely be very happy to see that. Uh, it's actually a page on the main RSH website and you can access it the same way that you do the main one, www.safeguardingsupporthub.org forward slash Ethiopia. Local organizations will find um, materials that are translated in different languages. Some will be in one language only, Amharic. Some will be in up to seven languages so far. Um, but the main hub will be in Amharic and in English. In due time, we plan to have three or more local languages um, on the landing page but we still are going to have a lot of materials in different languages um, available. Because we are starting to uh, come, I mean, we're starting to have the dialogue going on, organizations may feel hesitant to share their resources. But um, in due course, we hope to see a lot of change and it, it evolving into something big where organizations organizations trust to share their um, resources yeah absolutely important point i guess um as the website evolves and as the program also evolves and um, organizations can see exactly what it looks like and, and what we're trying to achieve um hopefully there's going to be sort of more um sort of exchange and, and and partnerships with organizations to share their materials um, now, you also mentioned access to support. So obviously, we, you've mentioned the resources on the website. Is there any other kind of support um, available specifically to these local organisations? Yes, we're piloting a more tailored service for local CSOs. We're starting off uh, with those funded by the FID. We call it Ask an Expert. It's a free service to support organisations who want advice and support on safeguarding. Um, particularly on SEH. We're going to match CSOs with local or international expertise to help them solve uh, safeguarding problems or give advice on their uh, safeguarding practices. We will start in English and Amharic, but over time we hope we may be able to work in other languages um, too. Um, more information on this and application details are available on the website because it has uh, frequently asked questions uh, section where they get, can get details. Um, we think this will be really valuable as it helps go beyond general advice um, to provide a more intensive hands-on assistance. Sometimes that could really be uh, very important to make those meaningful changes or solve really challenging situations that a CSO, a CSO may be facing. Yeah, that's really exciting that there's going to be this bespoke support 
Um, so there's so much going on with the with the national hub in Ethiopia, as you've mentioned, sort of from scoping the landscape to collecting resources for the Ethiopia hub page, and then this sort of bespoke support. What do you think is going to be the key to the hub's success in Ethiopia? That's a challenging question. <laughs> Challenge for um, a, a you know initiative like RSH is to understand what kind of need that um, uh, users want. How do they want these kind of informations to come? How do they access it? We're talking about a country which has limited internet access and most of the uh, access that I, they have is on a phone, not on a computer based. So whatever situation we, um, wherever you know, materials we put online, then we have to be very careful. We also need to ensure we complement existing initiatives and support, contextualized and localized support uh, and make it very specific to the country. We do not want to duplicate. So we are working really closely and collaboratively with existing initiatives. The hub needs to also engage with civil society and build trusting relationships. Right now, it's a difficult time because of the COVID pandemic. It has really restricted uh, our ability to um, build relationships, go to offices, visit, negotiate, and also um, you know, have good uh, face-to-face introduction. We have a culture of a lot of things. That look, unless I see you, I cannot trust you. Mm, interesting, yeah. I mean, I guess connecting these meaningful relationships are always going to be quite challenging online, especially when it's not necessarily part of your culture or the way that you work. And I guess that in terms of, in terms of building trust, the more the organisations recognise that the hub is responding to, to their needs and to the data that they're collecting, um, the more trust will be built. But I guess that's over time, isn't it? Yes. The hub needs also to look forward into phone-based apps that do not require um, being online all the time. When you get one-time access to the internet, then it downloads it into your phone and then you can access those resources. So the, the hub is trying to also be very creative um, in light of the findings of uh, the users. Yeah, and I guess it will also make for an interesting mix to have um, some online, some on an offline app and also face-to-face. It's uh, quite nice to have a combination of different of different styles of, of engagement. Yes. Well, Thank you so much for your time, Samhal. It was it was really interesting to hear about. Um, I mean, starting from your interest in in this area to the landscape to to what you you've been working on so far. It was really insightful and, and engaging, and I'm sure we'll continue to see the result of um, all the hard work that you've mentioned on the Ethiopia Hub page um, and also in Ethiopia. We're uh, excited. Um, I think a lot of organisations are watching the space and also eagerly waiting what they would be finding there and tr- trying to build it together afterwards. Great, thank you. Thank you. Okay, so that's it for today. We hope you enjoyed our first podcast, Safeguarding Matters. Uh, thanks to all of you for listening. If you want to learn more about the programme, why not have a browse on our online hub at safeguardingsupporthub.org. 
Not only will you find the Ethiopia Hub page that Semhal has been speaking to us about, but you can also browse the site to find quality assured safeguarding tools, to read the latest evidence and guidance, and to become part of a community of practice. You can also subscribe to our newsletter where you'll be the first to hear about new content, webinars, and all other events. Thanks so much for joining and see you on our next podcast. Yeah, thanks a lot. Bye for now.